Jonathan McIntosh is a fellow of humanities at New St. Andrews College, where he teaches courses on political and economic philosophy. Tonight, he's bringing us a talk titled Reflections on Mere Christendom. So please welcome Jonathan. All right. Good evening, everyone. Um, actually, as I often do, I retitled my talk. Uh, so the current version is More Mere Than Mere Christendom. And uh, my talk this evening is on Pastor Douglas Wilson's latest book, came out earlier this summer, uh, titled Mere Christendom. And I, I did invite him uh, to be here this evening, and uh, he was out of town, so he was not able to, to be here. Uh, in this paper, I want to explain what uh, Pastor Wilson's concept of mere Christendom is, and despite my agreement with uh, what I take to be the foundation of the mere Christendom project, um, I want to talk about um, some of what I th think are the philosophical and conceptual problems, what some of the philosophical and conceptual problems are with the concept of mere Christendom as Pastor Wilson has characterized it. Uh, well, first, what is mere Christendom? This is a term uh, Pastor Wilson has coined, I think he's been using it for about 12 or 13 years or so, to describe what the next Christendom or model of Christian society and civilization ought and may be expected to look like as the new and improved successor to the old Christendom that stretched from basically the beginning of the Middle Ages uh, to our current uh, secular order of the last hundred years or more. As Pastor Wilson himself has defined it, the term mere Christendom means, quote, a network of nations bound together by a formal, public, civic acknowledgement of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the fundamental truth of the Apostles' Creed. I, Pastor Wilson speaking here, mean a public and formal recognition of the authority of Jesus Christ that repudiates the principles of secularism and that avoids both hard sectarianism and easy latitudinarianism both, end quote. In another place, Pastor Wilson refers to mere Christendom as, quote, a distinctively Christian civil order, one that is not limited to just one nation, end quote, and which is the political fruit of the church carrying out its, quote, assigned task to disciple all the nations, teaching them obedience to Christ, end quote. The non-sectarian ecumenical character of this mere Christendom is stressed in this comment, uh, quote, but when doctrinaire Christians get power, one of their temptations is that they want to impose their whole system down to the jots and tittles. We must refrain from doing this, but we must refrain from doing this because Jesus demands that we refrain. This is what I remain uh, what I mean by the mere in mere Christendom, end quote. So one of Pastor Wilson's principal exemplars of mere Christendom is the pattern of denominational pluralism at the time of the American founding, of which he writes this, quote, our republic was part of Christendom. The fact that numerous Christian denominations were involved meant that we, were provi we provided the beta testing for a mere Christendom, end quote. The Americanism of mere Christendom is made even more specific in a statement that the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, with its prohibition of an established religion and protection of religious liberty, free speech and free press, and the right of assembly, quote, provides us with a model of mere Christendom, end quote. This then, in Pastor Wilson's own words, is at least part of what mere Christendom is about. 
And insofar as it looks forward to a future in which human societies, including their culture and their political organization, have been radically transformed in this life by the gospel, uh, I think it describes something that every Christian should both desire and labor to bring about. But as I say, this is only a part of what Pastor Wilson means by mere Christendom. Um, for the concept also contains many other things, and it's when it starts to venture into the specifics of actual uh, political philosophy that I think the problems for this concept of mere Christendom begin to arise. My argument in this paper is that the primary philosophical problem with Pastor Wilson's concept of mere Christendom is that it seeks to combine what are in fact mutually incompatible political philosophies. And that it does so in a way that not only makes his concept of mere Christendom theoretically incoherent, but which also makes it practically unworkable for, and I think even counterproductive to, the very task of Christian consensus and coalition building that I think his concept of mere Christendom is intended to bring about. And the mutually incompatible political philosophies found within the, this concept of mere Christendom that I have in mind are um, Pastor Wilson's classical liberalism and libertarianism on the one hand, and his endorsement of magisterial Protestantism, theonomy, and Christian nationalism on the other. So I'm suggesting there's two sides to mere Christendom and that these two sides are, are in fundamental conflict with each other. Let's begin with the classical liberalism of mere Christendom. In his book, Pastor Wilson affirms the classical liberal doctrines of radically limited government, free markets, the rule of law, religious liberty, and the freedom of speech. In short, uh, you might say the philosophy behind the Declaration of Independence and of the U.S. Constitution's Bill of Rights. Of the former, the, U the Declaration of Independence, pa Pastor Wilson writes this. The Declaration says that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, those being the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is quite correct, end quote. And of the First Amendment, Pastor Wilson says that it, quote, guarantees four basic freedoms, the freedom of religion, speech, press, and assembly, uh, and that it is not the case that a mere Christendom would violate anything in the First Amendment, end quote. On classical liberalism more generally, in response to Jonathan Lehman's denial uh, that the Bible gives us classical liberalism, Pastor Wilson writes, quote, I am saying the Bible gives us classical liberalism, Christian classical liberalism, not Enlightenment classical liberalism, end quote. So by Christian classical liberalism, Pastor Wilson means a, a classical liberal order that does not take itself for granted as an autonomous given, but which understands its own truth um, and validity to be a consequence of the Christian understanding of God, the world, of man, um, and morality. More than, being, more than merely being a classical liberal, Pastor Wilson characterizes mere Christendom as being on the specifically libertarian end of the classical liberal spectrum. In one passage, he characterizes his theocratic libertarianism this way. He is a libertarian insofar as his, quote, agreement, agreement with C.S. Lewis is on the live and let live end of things. Like Lewis, I want government to be modest and to set for itself strictly limited objectives, end quote. And Pastor Wilson goes on to say he's a theocratic libertarian insofar as, quote, unlike Lewis, I believe that requiring government to be modest in this way is a strongly ethical requirement. And as a strong, as a strong ethical requirement requires a, transcendent, uh, a transcendental grounding, end quote. Um, and I, I think, uh, uh, 
Well, I would quibble with his use of theocracy here, but, but what he means by theocracy is, 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 is rule by God. And in this sense, his, his definition of theocratic libertarianism, I take to be basically um, indistinguishable from what I've argued elsewhere or defended elsewhere, defined elsewhere as natural law libertarianism. So this then is the classical liberal and libertarian side of mere Christendom, and it's this part of the concept that appears, as I say, to be primarily responsible for putting the mere in mere Christendom. Let's turn now to the non-liberal, allegedly, or non-libertarian parts of Pastor Wilson's mere Christendom concept, beginning with his magisterial Protestantism. Magisterial Protestantism, excuse me, refers to the teaching of mainline reformers such as Martin Luther and John Calvin that the secular authority or civil magistrate has an important and indeed necessary role to play, not only in enforcing justice, but also in policing matters of religious practice, and which includes especially enforcing the first table of the law's commands regarding idolatry and Sabbath keeping, so the first four of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Pastor Wilson indicates his magisterial Protestant sympathies when he comments that even today, the civil magistrate still should have the authority, quote, to convene synods and councils, end quote. And in his criticism of those contemporary Christians who would deny that the first table of the law should be civically enforced. Uh, Pastor R Wilson refers to these folks as having made an uneasy truce with secularism. Yet how this magisterial Protestantism coheres with the above liberalism and libert libertarianism in mere Christendom, according to which freedom of speech and religion are protected rights and government assumes a live and let, let, live, and let live policy is far from clear. This tension is confirmed um, I think by the fact that Pastor Wilson himself ends up, uh, it seems to me, abandoning the magisterial Protestant position when he argues at some length, he devotes a couple of chapters to the subject, I think it's chapters 11 and 12 of his book, that the civil magistrate ought not to be in the business of enforcing the first table of the law. Pastor Wilson writes this, quote, some think it is clear that we simply must enforce the first table of law against the likes of Servetus, but we must also remember at the same time that Christendom had been guilty of enforcing the first table against some of the godliest people in their realms. For every miscreant like Servetus who was executed, there have been countless thousands of saints who have been executed by that bloody maniac, the state, end quote. He goes on to say that, quote, those who want the government to have the right to kill blasphemers are also asking for the government to have the right to kill those who rebuke their blasphemies, end quote. That is the government's blasphemies. More generally, he says that, quote, rulers, kings, princes, and presidents share with the rest of us this radical disease of depravity. When those rulers are brought to obedience, one of the first things that will develop from this is the idea of limited government. And, that, and the more instructed he is, the more the magistrate will know that the power of the gospel is not to be found in carnal weapons. He should do whatever he can to keep his coercive powers out of the way, end quote. And I think most conclusively, he says, quote, and yet the mission given to the Christian church does require to eradicate blasphemy. How is that mission to be accomplished? Not through the law, end quote. Well, this raises a number of questions. Were the magisterial, magisterial Protestants wrong then in teaching that the civil magistrate should enforce the first table of the law? If they were, I think we should, just, we should say so. Another question for Pastor, Pastor Wilson's argument is this. If, if we are to believe that Scripture commands that first table offenses be punished, how does the potential abuse of a thing justify not doing what you think Scripture commands? 
In a different context, Pastor Wilson says, quote, if we have a genuine $20 bill or genuine $20 bills that can be used to purchase goods and services, then it is certainly going to create the temptation that counterfeiters have to print their own $20 bills in the basement. But nobody takes this as a good reason to abandon the use of currency, end quote. Well, likewise, I would say, on Pastor Wilson's principles, why should the temptation that some rulers will inevitably have to abuse legislation regarding the first table be taken as a good reason to abandon its enforcement altogether? If, if, if we assume the principle that first table of the law is, is, is fair game for the magistrate. In, in the Christian era. In any event, I'd like to know um, why Pastor Wilson's insistence that the eradication of blasphemy is not to be achieved through law does not, by his earlier metric, make him too guilty of making an uneasy truce with secularism. A similar problem arises in connection with the theonomic aspects of mere Christendom. Whereas the magisterial Protestant tradition held that the first table of the law was on the table, so to speak, for the civil magistrate to enforce. Theonomy is the view that we must go even further and hold that the entire judicial law of the Old Testament is still binding, at least in principle, on Christian societies today, a position, incidentally, that the magisterial Protestants uh, themselves generally rejected. Uh, the inherent contradiction that I see between Pastor Wilson's liberalism and libertarianism on the one hand and his, in the concept of mere Christendom and his theonomy on the other is testified once again by the fact that I think he too has to drastically redefine theonomy in order to make it fit within his concept of mere Christendom, such that his theonomy is no longer identifiable as any version of theonomy really deserving of the name. First, Pastor Wilson describes himself as a general equity theonomist, um, and, and where general equity theonomy is the idea that the judicial law still applies today, not in its specific details, but in its general equity or underlying universal principles. The problem with uh, uh, the phrase general equity theonomy is that it borrows the term general equity from the Westminster Confession of Faith's express denial that the judicial law applies today, except in those rare or occasionally mo occasional moments where the principle of general equity would indicate that they do apply. General equity theonomy, in other words, uses Westminster's language to turn Westminster on its head by completely reversing the burden of proof and asserting that the judicial laws do apply unless the general equity might say that they don't. Well, Pastor Wilson's um, creative uh, interpretation of theonomy doesn't end here. Uh, he writes, quote, so following Old Testament law, so following Old Testament law is much more about copying the system of law that it contained than it is about reproducing every detail of the law. This is what our common law system does. It is a theonomic reproduction of a system of precedents and principles. That is what a case law system is." End quote. On the contrary, I would say, whatever the similarities might be between the judicial law and the case law system of common law, this is not what theonomy means, um, nor do I think it is what the principle of general equity means. But where Pastor Wilson's most obvious, where I think he most obviously abandons um, theonomy is in his discussion of how God has changed his tactics in the new covenant. He says this, quote, the standards of God's law being rooted as they are in the character of God himself do not change. How could they change? But God's tactics, God's strategies change. Because of the triumph of Christ on the cross, which was the turning point in the long war, one of the central strategic shifts for God's people has occurred in this area. 
By this area, I mean the realm of religious liberty, free speech, personal freedoms, all that, end quote. So while Pastor Wilson um, uh, presents um, his argument, his, his account of theonomy in a new garb, I think for all intents and purposes at this point, uh, he's, he has completely reverted to much, a much more traditional anti-theonomic view, namely that the judicial precepts of the old law do not, in principle, apply today to today because Christ has come and his purpose for civil society is now different. Uh, in a debate that Pastor Wilson had with theonomist Joel McDermott, uh, Pastor Wilson faulted, and I think with some justification, he uh, faulted McDermott for allowing his libertarianism to drive his understanding of how the law of God was to be applied or not applied today. But I think the same charge uh, stands to be made, and perhaps with even more justification, that Pastor Wilson has done the same thing here. He's allowing his classical liberalism and libertarianism to dictate his theonomy to the point that it no longer can be plausibly said to be theonomy at all. The third and final piece in the problematic triad of, of mere Christendom is, is Christian nationalism, a term that has, term that has so many different meanings as, as to be almost useless. For the liberal media, the term appears to be indistinguishable from Trumpism, um, or maybe just it, Christian nationalism is just Christians advocating for any law or policy that would seek to check human wickedness. Um, it's just very generic. Um, some Christians have used the expression Christian nationalism uh, to refer, I think somewhat vacuously, to any desire or attempt at Christianizing one's nation or society, regardless of what particular political philosophy they might subs- uh, those Christians might subscribe to. Um, but uh, I think if we want to use the term Christian nationalism more precisely, I think uh, the definition given by Stephen Wolfe in his book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, um, is helpful here even if it's a definition that, as I'll suggest momentarily, I think does not fit well with the concept of mere Christendom. As Wolf defines it, Christian nationalism is, quote, a totality of national action. It's a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. There's a lot there. Let me give it to you one more time. So Christian nationalism is the totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. In my own words, I would uh, characterize Christian nationalism, at least in, in Wolf's sense of the term, is basically a program of its magisterial Protestantism combined with a distinctly and specifically ethno-nationalist agenda. Christian nationalism, in other words, is about each nation legislating and ruling in a way that positively protects and promotes that nation's unique national or ethnic identity, including its unique religious identity. In this case, if it's Christian nationalism, it's a Christian uh, religious identity uh, and, and, and the specific character of the, the Christianity of that people in particular. The necessary result is a program involving, it seems to me, a far more uh, vigorous and rigorous enforcement of that nation's interpretation of the first table of the law, as well as a far more vigorous and rigorous establishment of church-state relations than um, I think we've seen Pastor Wilson being willing or comfortable uh, in countenancing. 
This raises the question once again as to how all of this is at all compatible with the inherently liberal and libertarian dimensions of mere Christendom. There are two final questions that I would want to raise regarding mere Christendom as it's been formulated. The first is this, granted that Christians should seek for nothing less than the complete evangelization and reformation of society, bringing all of our hearts and all of our institutions into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So given all that, but given Pastor Wilson's own acknowledgement, this won't happen apart from God's grace and apart from God's own timing. Here's the question. In the meanwhile, what does it look like in the present for Christians to share in a principled manner a political society with non-believers? Especially maybe a Christian uh, or a political society where we're only 50% or, or, or a minority. What, what does it look like? What are the principles on which we, we live with our fellow non-believers? Or can we? Uh, presumably, Pastor Wilson's answer is not that there can be no shared political society, and so we um, you know, must simply be at little war with each other. Yet the impression I often get from Pastor Wilson's political writings is that a shared political society um, may not, in fact, be possible, and that any attempt to account for how we can live peaceably with non-believers is in danger of being guilty of a fatal compromise with secularism. Yet it seems to me that this is a question that a, 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 mere, a, a doctrine of mere Christendom needs to answer. In response to Pap- Baptist theologian and writer uh, Scott Annual, Pastor Wilson posed the following, and I think excellent question. What if we win? What if we win? But I have a related question, and I think it's a question that somebody like Scott Annual need, needs to be able to answer. I'm not sure that he has one. But I have a related question um, that I just genuinely don't know how Pastor Wilson would answer. What is to be our political philosophy for peaceful coexistence with unbelievers now in the present, present while we are waiting to win? <laughs> okay? um, while we are waiting for God to give us victory. Are there any political principles we are able to share with the non-Christians that don't fall under the censure of being a fatal compromise with secularism? Second question I have concerns Pastor Wilson's use of eschatology to solve some of the conflicts, it seems to me, to try to solve some of the conflicts between his liberalism and libertarianism and that side of mere Christendom and its more magisterial Protestant theonomic Christian nationalist side. There are a number of places in his book and elsewhere in his writings where, although Pastor Wilson adopts a more liberal and libertarian posture for purposes of the present, he nevertheless allows for the possibility of a very different, more stridently anti-liberal and theonomic policy in the, dis- in the future, maybe distant future. A good example is this quote. He says this, And for the fire-eating, broken-glass-chewing theonomists out there, all 12 of them, The idea of a mere Christendom sounds like we have a fatal compromise baked into the project from the get-go. Why not a root and branch Christendom? Why not jet fuel Christendom? Why not black coffee Christendom? Well, cool your baby jets. Give us a few centuries, would you? We're post-mail. We'll get there. So it seems that the mere... uh, End quote. Uh, So it seems that the mere in mere Christendom is not, in fact a permanent or principled philosophical position, but an entirely provisional one that is to be retired once Christians presumably reach a certain critical mass and are in a position to implement a very different kind of Christendom, one that appears to have not a little in common with the old Christendom that Pastor Wilson elsewhere criticizes. 
Is it Pastor Wilson's view that in the future, men will evolve or become so sanctified that we can finally begin to trust rulers with the kind of coercive power that he says he wants to deny even Christian rulers in the more liberal phase of mere Christendom? All of this suggests to me that uh, mere Christendom, and by Pastor Wilson's own mission, admission, it seems here, um, isn't in fact a settled political philosophy at all. But if so, I can't help but think that some of Pastor Wilson's uh, conservative evangelical skeptics of mere Christendom are right then to worry that this program might be a bit of a Trojan horse, threatening to smuggle in far more than was initially bargained for. So in conclusion then, while I think something like a concept of mere Christendom is indeed what the church needs, I don't think the concept of mere Christendom as it is currently formulated has the coherence necessary to fit the bill. And the reason is that is not really a mere Christendom, it seems to me, at all, but is an extraordinarily idiosyncratic and eclectically syncretistic Christendom, trying to bring together positions that don't cohere. For this reason, I think we need a Christendom that is even more mere than mere Christendom. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation from the George Buchanan Forum Conference. We have many more that you can check out at our website at tgbf.org. You can also find us on YouTube or on your favorite podcasting platform. In true free market fashion, we're entirely crowdfunded by the generous support of people like you. If you'd like to help our work, you can set up one-time or recurring donations at tgbf.org. The best way for others to hear about us is from their friends. So please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing our material. We greatly appreciate it.